Early on the first day of the week, a man rises and he paints his face in what would appear to be war paint. With his other brothers and sisters in the order, they gather outside the temple of the gods for a feast. After the feast, they head into the temple, which has been built even using the tax money of the kingdom's citizens. Now in the temple, they await the arrival of the gods, those, those great legends who have performed feats far beyond what any normal mortal could do. Together, they sing and chant, and, and then suddenly, like bursts of lightning into the temple, the gods arrive to do battle with the demons. Before they battle, the, the raucous chanting turns to silence, and altogether, with reverent postures of worship, they sing as one about the great battles that warriors in the past have fought to keep them safe. For many, a, a deep well of emotion bursts forth as they sing this song. They, they feel alive. They feel connected to something bigger. They feel connected to the others who sing with them. Birds of war fly overhead as the singing ends. Then the worshipers return to thunderous chants, clapping and feasting and drinking. For the many in attendance today, this is their church. Now, as you hear this description, you might be thinking that I'm talking about some ancient pagan ritual in some faraway land in some long ago time, but I'm not. I'm talking about an average Sunday in probably just about every major city in the U.S. in the fall where an NFL football game is being played. In today's episode, part two of our series entitled Understanding Our Meaning Crisis, we're going to explore why people today are actually no less religious than what they were a thousand years ago. And we're going to talk about why nobody is actually truly an atheist. It's not new information to present to all of you today that the religious landscape in the Western world, and particularly here in the United States, has undergone a radical shift over the last few decades. And as we talked about in the first part of this series, it's it's not that this has only been limited to the last few decades. This shift has been taking place over a course of hundreds of years, of which we're really now just starting to see the perhaps the, the full manifestation of this shift in our culture today. Now, Pew Research Center has been doing a long-term study on the the trends in religious affiliation in the US and they've been they've been doing this since 1972 which is actually you know a pretty significant starting point in cultural history in the United States if you go back to that time the late 60s and the early 70s this is really beginning of a dramatic cultural shift in the U.S. history. You had the sexual revolution, um, the, the free love movement of the late 60s. We get into the early 70s, and we've actually, we actually have a, a full-on religious revival that actually takes place in the United States with the, the Jesus People movement. And um, this, was, this was covered even in Time magazine. There's a famous cover of Time magazine. I believe it's from 1972, and on the, the the front cover, there's a, a picture in almost psychedelic fashion of, of, of Jesus 
and uh, over the top of his head, it says the Jesus Revolution. Actually, that's from 1971. So it's from June of 1971 that Time Magazine featured this article covering this phenomenon. And so if you actually look at the Pew Research Center trends, and if you want to do some due diligence of your own on this, just Google Pew Research Center long-term trends in religious affiliation. You'll be able to find a whole bunch of charts and data and stuff that that cover this. So we go back to 1972 uh, when they first started tracking this, and we see actually a peak, uh, a peak in religious affiliation with um, what's been called, uh, you know, evangelical. And what you'll see here is this like skyrocketing movement from 72 into the mid 70s, where evangelical Protestants are on a sharp, sharp rise. And that rise actually, you know, with some with some peaks and valleys, uh, continues, continues to grow all the way into the 1990s and the mid, mid early to mid 1990s. But there's a few other lines that you can track, you can see on this graph. In fact, I have one over on my Patreon page. Uh, if you look back to a post I did a couple weeks ago, I, I, I talk about the, the rise of no religion and uh, some of this data that, that Pew has just released. In fact, um, in fact, actually, that chart, just to be specific, that, that chart is actually from the, from the New York Times, a uh, general social survey actually done by Eastern Illinois University. So, uh, but the, the data actually is very similar. It's the same stuff that you'll find with Pew Research Center. But what you'll see from 1972 onward is that mainline Protestant, the mainline Protestant tradition has been in sharp decline. There was a, a little bit of a spike in the, in the mid-70s, and there's been peaks and valleys, but those peaks and valleys have just trended downward and downward, downward, all the way to today, where only 11% of uh, Americans affiliate today with mainline Protestant Christianity. Catholics, for the most part, have remained pretty constant. You know, they've had some 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 dips, but they've they've hovered around from 1972 till today. They've hovered between 27 to 23 percent, um, maybe a couple points in which they got above 20 percent of. Uh, Americans that identified as Catholics. But what we've actually seen here over the last decade, since the early 2000s, is that evangelicalism has been in decline. Evangelical Protestants have been in decline. And what we have seen a a momentous rise in, a skyrocketing from that point about early, early 1990s, where we saw the sort of the, the the top of the mountain for evangelical Protestants, we also see at that point it starts to decline. And parallel with this decline is the rise of the no religious affiliation people, or what sometimes has been called the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not nuns as in Catholic nuns. And a deeper investigation into this data would reveal that the demographic, the, the group of Americans that are most likely to be a nun are millennials, those born 1981 or later, which would be my demographic, my age group. I'm, I was born in 19, 1983. And as you look at the data, you look at Pew's Center for uh, Pew's Research Center Forum on Religion and Public Life, 
you'll see that uh, attendance at religious services by each generation. This is a this data is a little bit a little bit old, but I I think it's still relevant. Uh, This particular data is a little bit old. What you'll see is that the attendance uh, at religious services, so people who attend religious services, percent of people that say they attend several times a week, every week, or nearly every week, among the greatest generation, so those people born before 1928, by the late 2000s, uh, that generation had about 56%, 56% of people in the, the greatest generation, the generation born before 1928, 56% of them attended religious services regularly. You drop down uh, another generation to the silent generation, and then, you know, in the silent generation, which are people born before 1928 to 1945, or I should say born between 1928 and 45, and 44% of them attend religious services. The boomers, 32% of them attend religious services. Gen Xers, so those of you guys that are 1965 to 1980, 27% attend religious services. But among millennials, only 18% of them attend religious services. So, all of these numbers, not to bore you with a bunch of data right before, right at the, the start of this episode, but all of these numbers point to what I think we could all just anecdotally recognize, that Americans are becoming more secular. And, and I, I think there is a deep connection between this growing secularism and the meaning crisis that we're experiencing, where we're, we're seeing... Uh, some staggering numbers, especially in this, again, this demographic of people, um, you know, eight, 18 to 30 in their 30s right now, where suicide is the second highest leading cause of death among Americans in this demographic, the second highest leading cause of death. I think there's correlation between this rise of secularism, the rise of the nuns, and this increasing meaning crisis that we're we're experiencing. But as the numbers might point to, while it seems as if on the surface that people are becoming more secular or perhaps more not non-religious, the question I want to ask today and explore is, does that actually mean that they are really less religious? And, and is it even possible to have no religious views, no worldview? And is it really even possible to be an atheist, to have no God that you worship? Okay, so people might imagine based on this data, that that modern people today are far less into spiritual things than ancient people were. But I think it's actually a misnomer to say that people today are less religious or less spiritual. It might be better to say that people today are perhaps less superstitious than people were hundreds of years ago. And those two things are not the same. People throughout time have always been engaged in this meaning-making endeavor, which again is kind of the, the subtitle of my podcast, I, I, I choose that phrase intentionally, this meaning-making endeavor where we attempt to make sense of the world and understand life's biggest questions. Particular systems of thought that, that claim to provide answers to those questions and give people a particular moral compass and help them arrange their values have always been around. And if you want to call that, if you don't want to call that a religion, well, what do you want to call it? 
That is the purpose and the function that religions have played throughout time. They, they give people a particular moral compass, they provide answers to life's big questions, and then they help people arrange their values and, and be able to name their values and give their life a structure. And, and I don't think that has disappeared one bit. What we've called religions are actually just those schools of thought and practice that are attached to certain claims of divine or supernatural revelation. But in a secular world where people may deny or be agnostic about the existence of a deity or the supernatural, they don't suddenly stop having something of which nothing greater can be thought or doing the other things traditionally associated with religion, such as worship. So... What do I mean by this? That What do I mean when I say all people have something of which nothing greater can be thought? Well, Anselm of Canterbury, the, the, the great medieval theologian, 11th century medieval theologian, argued that God was that than God was that than which nothing greater can be thought. And he he made this argument as a sort of philosophical argument, philosophical proof for the existence of God. But perhaps if we could put a little postmodern twist on Anselm's argument, we, we might be able to say that uh, everyone has a God. They have something at the top of their value system. They have something of which they can think no higher than. They have something that they worship as their highest value. It's the thing, again, that they, they can't think anything greater than. Or if you've gone through uh, any of the videos that I've done on humanity's six biggest meaning-making questions, the question number one about what is, what is ultimate reality, everybody has an ultimate reality that they would say this is the, the foundational layer of reality. They also have a value system. Everybody has a value system, and everybody has values that are subordinate to some highest principle. And we can see that. We can see what people actually worship. We can see what is at the top of people's value systems, the, the, the superordinate principle by which it governs their morals, their behavior, their sense of meaning and purpose, and even their vocational choices— we can see that through the, let's just say, quote unquote, worship practices of their daily lives. Let's go back to the story I told at the beginning of this episode, the language that I used to describe an NFL game that you might think was a little bit preposterous. But I, I want us to step back, and if we were for a moment to be able to step back and maybe just uh, agree with agree with my thesis here for a moment that that everybody has a god everybody has something at the top of their value system they have something of which they can think no higher than they have something which governs their life gives it meaning value gives it a structure and let's take a look at an NFL football game and take a look at how I, I worded that story. Well, when do NFL games happen? Well, up until recently where they seem to like, NFL wants to add a game to every day of the week. For the most part, NFL games happen on the first day of the week. 
Well, let's look at how people express their values. They will do things like get up really, really early, spend a lot of their hard-earned money. And as we maybe look at the common demographic of an NFL fan, we might see that across cities throughout the U.S. that there are people who are maybe predominantly blue-collar workers that will spend, especially given the proportion of the ticket price to their income, they are spending a load of money to have season tickets, to get really good seats. They're going to show up early. They're going to tailgate. They're going to paint their face. They're going to wear jerseys. And why are they doing all of this? Well, because there's this spectacle happening in this this, uh, arena, I should say, this stadium. And oftentimes these stadiums, like the one here in Minneapolis, is subsidized by taxpayer dollars. So you have this feast outside, this tailgate feast. You go in and you watch the spectacle of these behemoth super athletes. We could say in many ways they are gods like the Greek gods to many Americans today. They perform feats far beyond that of most mortals you will ever come into contact with your life. I mean, how many six, seven... 350 pound people do you know that can run like a 4540 boy if that's not similar to you know a, a story the greeks might believe about hercules i don't know what is so you're in this place this place that you have even paid tax dollars for or you've paid your hard earned money for these people gather together you gather with your close friends you see these gods do battle against people that you know, you might not feel this way, but if you've ever attended an NFL football game, you know there are people there in the stands that truly believe the opposing team are a bunch of demons, <laughs> that these, that this other team is the epitome of evil. Um, you know, I was at, earlier this year, I was, uh, I live in Minnesota here, I live in Minneapolis, and I was able to go to a Vikings game versus the Packers. You can't tell me that there aren't people there who don't truly believe that like Aaron Rodgers is a demon <laughs> or that the, the the Packers are an opposing force of evil in the world. And you might say, well, Paul, nobody actually believes that. Oh, really? Well, what happens to some of those people if the Packers beat the Vikings? Does it ruin their day? Does it ruin their week? Do they go home and drink all the more harder to drown their sorrows? I mean, we know this is true. People get in fights in the parking lots of these sorts of games. This is an expression of their deepest values. It, it, we haven't even talked about all the other sorts of acts of worship that happen in an NFL game. What about all the hullabaloo that's happened over the last couple of years and the discussions surrounding whether or not players should be standing for the national anthem? Why is that such a big deal to people? Again, you take this arena full of, you know, excited people, people, many drunk people at NFL stadiums already by kickoff time because they've been tailgating for a few hours. And as soon as that music plays, that song that tells us about how our freedom and victory has been won through war and through struggle, everybody stands and they they put their hands over their hearts. I mean, what is that? What is that if that is not a posture of worship? And they sing this story, this narrative, which provides them 
a sense of a meaning and purpose for their people, for their nation. And this song that they sing is about rockets bursting in air and bombs, and it gave proof through the night that our flag was still there. And if you don't stand and look at that flag, if you don't pay honor and reverence to it, well, you're going to get yourself in a lot of trouble. And and I'm not here today to try to get into that debate, but why is it that someone like a, a guy like Colin Kaepernick or other NFL players, they choose to symbolically take a knee during that and all hell breaks loose? You can't tell me that that is really that different than Nebuchadnezzar making an image of himself and requiring everybody to bow before it. And guys like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, no, we're not going to bow. And they get themselves in a world of trouble. It's the same thing. These symbols, whether it's a, a statue or a flag or a song, are not in and of themselves just statues or flags or songs. They're deeply symbolic idols, if you will, uh, that represent these larger ideas. And you'll be able to tell by how people worship, which is how they live their lives, what is at the top of their value system? What is God for them? And I've gone to sporting events with uh, people, with religious people, with Christians that I have never seen in church, you know, sing with any sort of boldness, a song of praise or a hymn. I've never seen them give any sort of outward visible demonstration of worship in church, but I, I've been at sporting events with them, and when the fight song is sung, and they belt that thing with all their might, or you know, in the case of a Vikings football game, the, 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 the third down horn is blown throughout the stadium, and everybody stands for that on every third down. It's liturgy. This is religious liturgy in a secular age. Let's think of another cultural example, uh, not to just pick on sports. And I love sports, and I'm going to explain a little bit why that I, I'm not asking or saying that um, you know people that go to an NFL game or an NBA game or some sporting event are participating in some cult. That 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 doesn't have to be the case. Though it is, I it actually is the case for some people that this is their religion. This is the most valuable thing in their life, in their week. And this practice gives their life meaning and purpose. And if you take it away or if your team loses and it devastates your life, you cannot tell me that this isn't some sort of religious experience. But it's not the only one. Let's consider another one that has grown in popularity. Let's consider something like Comic Con, a comic convention. Really fun, wild experience. People dress up many people do at least, and they go to these conventions where they're in LA or New York City, and they dress up as the character from their favorite myth, from their favorite story, a story which has perhaps provided them with a narrative, a narrative that has guided their life, given their life a sense of meaning or purpose, or perhaps has given to them ethical instructions as to how they should live and be in the world. So people will go similar to a sporting event and they'll, they'll spend lots of money, which again is an expression of worship. It's if, if what you do with your time, 40 hours a week or whatever, is a significant portion of your life, 
And you are paid for that time, that time you've spent. You're paid for the value that you bring to your company or your job, your workplace, etc. And then you go and you take what you have been given for the fruits of your life and you go and you give that to someone else in exchange for a ticket to a comic convention. That is an act of worship. It's an act of expressing value. So you go to these, um, go to a comic convention. You'll see people dressed up as their 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 favorite mythological character, or their favorite, perhaps we might even say, mythological god. And they will even reenact scenes from these stories with their friends. And there's a sense of community. And again, just like at an NFL game, there are many good things, true things, and beautiful things that can be found in comic book stories in these sorts of modern myths that point us to an ultimate source of truth, goodness, and beauty. There is good, wonderful community that can emerge from these sorts of events and gatherings, but it's a religious experience. It's a deeply religious experience for most people. Now, I'm a bit of a Star Wars nerd. I I love, well, not to get me off on too far of a tangent, especially... Up until recently, I think Star Wars was one of my favorite modern myths. I, I loved the story of Star Wars. I loved the Star Wars universe. I think up until The Last Jedi de- deflated some of my joy for that story, but that's a topic for another time. Uh, I love that story. And I, when the uh, episode seven was released, uh, I waited in line. I got tickets the day it came out, ordered them online because I really enjoy this story. And I got to the theater early so I could get good seats for my my wife and I because it wasn't reserved seating. So I got there early and there were all sorts of people. I, I thought I was a hardcore Star Wars nerd until I got in line with all of these people that had spent a lot of money on really cool looking lightsabers and were decked out in full Jedi or Sith apparel and were having lightsaber battles in the hallway and going deep into Star Wars lore and with knowledge that blew mine away. And my Star Wars knowledge is is beyond probably a normal, healthy amount as his. And as I observed this, I, you know, for me, this was a story that I could see many wonderful parallels in. I could see truth, goodness, and beauty in, and I could see uh, how these stories help me better understand God's world and even even understand the Christian story better. And I'm sure there are many other people that possibly in that line felt the same way. So this isn't a judgment against them. But I I would also say that it was very, very clear that for others in that group, this was their religion. I mean, it quite literally was their religion. This story wasn't just the story itself. It was that somehow they could simulate, they could step into the story themselves and play a particular role and by stepping into the story it was giving them a sense of meaning and purpose that perhaps they weren't finding elsewhere. Now, another area, another place where in a secular age, we are able to see that people are deeply religious and they have a deep set of 
practices of worship, that there is a strict ideological adherence to certain propositions about reality and certain propositions about the nature of human beings. Another arena in the secular age where, where people are actually deeply religious, and you see this expression, is in politics. And this is where guys like uh, Leslie Newbegin, for example, have been completely prophetic. Guys like him and Charles Taylor were able to identify that as the West becomes more secular, there was a time in which church and state, religion and state was more closely intertwined, and I am by no means longing to go back to those days whatsoever. But what happens when those two be, became separate and even private practice of traditional religion, like, you know, like traditional expressions of Christianity, whether they be Protestant or, or Catholic, when, the, when those begin to decline, guys like Newbegin pointed out, well, what we're going to see here is a, a replacement of religion with worship of the state. You know, so it's a common thing you might hear people who decry religion and decry the evils of, of Christianity. And one of the things they always point to is the Crusades. Yes, the Crusades were a terrible time. And what they'll point to is they'll say, hey, guys, look, you know, religion is this terrible force for evil in the world. And the Christian religion is a terrible force for evil in the world. Look at the Crusades. Look at the Inquisition. Look at how those people and those primitive beliefs that they had were able to be manipulated to go out and commit terrible, egregious acts of violence like what happened in the Crusades where, you know, Pope Urban II announced that anybody that participated in the Crusade would get, you know, guaranteed salvation. And so look at that. It's terrible. It's awful. But, you know, what they neglect and leave out is how we haven't seen anything better in the 20th century. We had two of the worst wars in human history, the most violent, horrific wars in the history of the world in World War One and World War II. And yes, there were certain religious elements that played a vital role in those wars. We do know how the Nazis would use uh, religious language to motivate the German people to uh, act in the world in a particular way. But the sovereignty of God was replaced by the sovereignty of the state. How else can you convince people, especially people from low rungs of the ladder and the socioeconomic ladder, people that come from impoverished neighborhoods or, or low-income neighborhoods who disproportionately fight in, in, in wars in the last hundred years in the 20th century. How else do you convince them to do so other, other than through this story about how you owe the state your allegiance, you owe the state uh, your, your honor, you owe the state even your life? So you got politics on that level. You have the elevation of the state, of government, to become the superordinate principle, the, the thing at the, the pinnacle of our values, the thing that all other values become subservient to. This is the state. This is, and oftentimes, especially in America, 
uh, we actually see this this weird sort of civil religion where in America the the state also will use religious language and, and perhaps prey upon the Christian narrative to ask its citizens to treat it as co-sovereign with God. This is really no different, guys. This is no different than what the ancient pharaohs of Egypt would do, where the, the pharaoh was, in fact, uh, a deity himself. And, and we have the same thing in America. It's no different. It really isn't any different. Your duty to God can also be your duty to serve your country. We might not call it the state, but maybe a, a, a term that seems far less gross in the ears of people is to say, you, you're to serve your country. And again, just like with sports or with Comic-Con, to serve and to love your neighbor is in fact a central tenet of the, the Christian story. It's central to the, the Christian ethos. And even a willingness to be able to give up your life for the sake of another. This is the meta pattern. This is the pattern of Christ's life that we see in the Gospels. And we see these injunctions throughout the New Testament that that Christians are, are called to follow this pattern of uh, self-emptying love of this giving of self, even to the point of death. Greater love has no man that he would lay down his life for his friends. But in this sort of civil religion, that notion is applied to uh, giving up your life in war. It's actually the highest expression of worship. Again, it's not going to be called worship, but it is the highest expression of love, the highest expression of adherence to the superordinate principle, the highest adherence to the highest value. It is the ultimate act of worship to give your life for the freedoms of your citizens, of your countrymen, of your neighbor, and not merely to sacrificially die for them, but to do so in a violent conflict against evil, or at least what's described to us as evil. So you, you've got this like overarching narrative of serving the state, serving country above all others. But within that, you have competing narratives of what that actually should look like. And in a secular age, people become even more passionate about these. We could just call them denominations because that's really what they are. They're denominations in the church of the state. And you've got two main denominations in the United States. You've got the Republican denomination and you've got the Democrat denomination. And these are their own churches, their own religious systems. And in these denominations, you have these messianic figures, and we've seen that, especially in the U.S. over the last several elections. We've seen that with the Democrats and Obama, and we've seen that with the Republicans now in Trump, that these two men act as, again, almost messianic figures for the narrative of that particular denomination. And if you don't think that's a religion... I just double dog dare you to try and be someone in one of those particular parties 
who who challenges one of the doctrines of those parties and just just see what happens to you. I mean, just for a moment, look at if you're familiar with these guys or this movement at all, the the into, what's been called the intellectual dark web. These guys like Jordan Peterson and Joe Rogan and Sam Harris and who else? Uh, Brett Weinstein and there's these guys that have challenged, even though probably most of them are pretty left-leaning in many areas, they have challenged the narrative, they've challenged the creed of the the political denomination, and they've been met with the full wrath of the priestly system of that denomination. So, I mean, that's just, that's just evidence of how this is, this is a substitute for traditional religion in a secular age. Okay, so we talked about how sports, culture, you know, Comic-Con, politics, these might be examples of religion, religious practice in a increasingly non-religious secular age. Um, There's another one I want to highlight, maybe one more that I think is really deserving of attention. And it there's some correlation with Comic-Con in, in this one. But uh, some theologians have even noted the correlation between declining attendance and Sunday worship coinciding with the increased accessibility and expansion of movies and television. So as, as one theory goes, people are, are now finding meaning-making stories in movies and television and not in weekly Christian worship. And these meaning-making stories they're finding in movies and television help give their own stories a sense of meaning and purpose in the world, rendering the need for things like church attendance useless. For some, watching a movie or or, or binging a Netflix series is a religious experience similar to a sermon. Now, correlation does not mean causation, but there there is some correlation between the the rise of the, the first video store Long before there was Blockbuster, the and long before there was Netflix, the the first video store, or more specifically, I should say that the first video rental store where where people could actually rent home movies, that was not a thing, happened in 1977. That was the beginning. It was opened up in Los Angeles in, in 1977. And then you look at the correlation possibly between the increase in access to these incredible stories, these stories that capture people's imaginations, and they're just, they're way easier to digest than a book, and they take way less time, and you're far more passive in your reception of these stories, and you, you see the increased access people have, and then you, you lay that up against these these um, these graphs that show the decline in religious participation, and you go, Wow. Maybe there is something to that. And even if there isn't, I think anecdotally, as you would talk to people, you would go and say, I mean, what's what's helped you understand or make sense more of your life? You know, the the sermon you heard on Sunday, or perhaps your 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 favorite movie series or your favorite television series or um, your favorite Netflix series. And they might not say aloud. The uh, well, this this I think the sermons suck, <laughs> but I love Game of Thrones. 
I mean, they might actually say that out loud, but what they might not admit is, or might, what they might not even be able, be able to admit, because these stories affect us at such a deep subconscious level, what they might not be able to admit is how these stories are providing more of a narrative foundation for their own sense of meaning and purpose in the world than what church has provided for them. So what's going on with all of these? And we could list off all sorts of other examples of how how people are finding meaning and value, how they are following this superordinate principle. They're, they have a God that is at the top of their value system. They have an answer for what is ultimate reality, and that, that gives them a, a direction and provides them a narrative purpose and ethical instruction for their life. We, we could go through all sorts of examples of that. But what's going on in all of these? What is happening in our secular age to make these sorts of religious practices normal and even more foundational for people's understanding of their place within the world, and yet simultaneously leaving this deep sense of emptiness, this frustration that is potentially leading to one of the worst suicide epidemics in U.S. history. Though the dominant worldview of the last century, naturalism, materialism, physicalism, we've talked quite a bit about that in the previous episode, and I, it, it always comes up because it is the dominant worldview of the last century. Though that worldview has taught that the imminent physical world of matter is all that there is, People have this innate desire for transcendence, and this this desire for transcendence just can't seem to be turned off. This desire for transcendence, though, is, is trapped within the limitations of the secular view. It's trapped within, again, what guys like Charles Taylor called the imminent frame. And, and it's left them frustrated with incomplete or counterfeit tastes of truth, goodness, and beauty. The imminent world alone cannot satisfy our longing for transcendence. Just as Paul noted in Romans about the pagan world of Gentile Greco-Romans, our, our modern secular world, which eliminates the possibility of a transcendent God, simply ends up substituting created things as God. So think about what Paul said in Romans 1, uh, verse 22 through 23. Although they claim to be wise... They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. People go looking for other sources of truth, goodness, and beauty. Just as humans, birds, animals, and reptiles were not inherently evil things in Paul's day, neither is football, political discourse, or theater. But when they, or money, or title, or even family are worshipped as God, it creates dysfunction and disorder, because only God is the sole source of truth, goodness, and beauty. And only God, the only true ultimate reality, can satisfy humanity's deepest longings. So traditionally, all human pursuits could be broken up into three categories. The, the pursuit of the true, the pursuit of the beautiful, and the pursuit, the pursuit of the good. 
And historically, Christians have believed that there is one source of all truth, all beauty, and all goodness. That source is God. The pursuit of truth is the the pursuit of revelation. It is God's general revelation through reason and through God's creation. It's the pursuit of God through special revelation, like the scriptures and the person of the Holy Spirit. The the pursuit of the beautiful is through the practice of worship and liturgy, and the, the pursuit of the good is done through ethics, and it's done through the pursuit of justice and morality. So what I'm suggesting to you guys is that, that when I say no one is an atheist, it's because all people still innately pursue, they have a longing for truth, goodness, and beauty. They have a longing for transcendence, but not all people agree that the end of their longing for transcendence, the end of their pursuit of truth, goodness, and beauty, not everyone agrees that the end of that is the Trinitarian God revealed in Christ. That doesn't mean that they don't have a source that they believe is the source of truth, goodness, and beauty. That, that, that doesn't mean that in the practice of their life that they are not living as if there were this higher principle, this idea that there was an ultimate reality that was uh, giving the structure to their values. Where perhaps Christians have gone wrong is in relegating God to simply acting as creator and then as final judge of how you did. But the in-between, in-between creation and judgment, especially over the last 100 years or so, we, we haven't probably done the best job at helping people see that the thing that they experience at an NFL game, for example, the, the sense of community that they experience, the sense of camaraderie with friends, with the, the sharing of a beer together or a hunk of meat at a tailgate party, that that, that experience of perhaps something good is intended to lead them somewhere else. It's not intended to be an end in and of itself, nor is it an evil, nor is it inherently wrong. What would make it right or wrong is who the God is of that moment. Just think about what what Paul wrote to Timothy in in 1 Timothy 4, um, verse 4. Paul said, For Everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So what makes all the difference in the world in that moment, if I'm at a a tailgate before an NFL game, is how I receive that burger, that hot dog. I know it sounds so silly and so so simple, but it it really is a, a change in perspective that change in perspective, that change in what is ordering my values in this moment, in and of itself, this hot dog or hamburger is an incomplete taste of goodness. 
I mean, it might taste good. I might really, really enjoy it. But I need to, in the moment, recognize that it's incomplete in its ability to ultimately satisfy my deepest longings, especially that longing for transcendence. And so in that moment, I receive that hamburger, I receive that hot dog. Sorry to you vegans and vegetarians out there. You can receive your kale with Thanksgiving too. But in that moment, I, I receive it as a gift of love, knowing that it's incomplete and knowing that at the end of it is an ultimately good God, a true God and beautiful God. And this, this moment is an invitation into deeper pursuit. It's an invitation into deeper communion. But at the NFL game, there, there aren't just incomplete tastes of truth, goodness, and beauty. There's, there is also counterfeit tastes of truth, goodness, and beauty. Boy, this is going to sound like getting on some sort of moral high horse, but an easy target to point to in an NFL game is, for me, the objectification of women. The objectification of women is so prominent in NFL stadiums where cheerleaders are thrown out onto the field to serve as objects, as eye candy for the men in attendance. And that's not to say, uh, I know that might feel um, really disparaging, I may be speaking really disparagingly of, of women who are who are in those roles. But the question I'd ask is, if it isn't that, then why are they sent out there so provocatively dressed and danced? It's not just NFL games. It happens at, uh, you know, NBA games. There's that famous meme of Jimmy Fallon uh, sitting in the front row of a basketball game, kind of looking, looking away as this uh, cheerleader is dancing pretty provocatively <laughs> right in front of him. What, what else is that but perhaps a, a counterfeit taste of of beauty one that leads is per, is intended to lead people towards lust and towards the objectification of the other there's real truth in that NFL stadium too there's truths that are in alignment with the source of all truth truths about what happens when people, subordinate their own desires and their own need for attention, and they give of that for the sake of someone next to them. They do that for a teammate. They, they subordinate their own desires for, for glory or for fame, and they give that up, and they work hard for the sake of the person next to them, the sake of the, the guy on their team. There's, there's truth in that. But uh, there's there's a lot of counterfeit truths as well, and the the thing that we could take one posture and it's to say, well, we just we don't go to NFL games anymore. But that if you landed on that, that you know, I wouldn't talk you out of it. But we could also go, well, maybe there's a more nuanced position where whether it's at an NFL game or whether it's in politics. You know, I, I've spoken pretty harshly about politics, but there are many good people out there who are attempting to serve God in the world the best that they can, following the what they believe to be the moral injunctions of caring for the poor or loving one's enemies, and they're, they're trying to bring that to bear in the political realm. They're trying to speak into the state, and not to get the state to go and, and, and enter into some sort of 
unholy matrimony with the church once again, but to say, no, there, there is a right way of, of living in the world. There's a, a way that's closer in accordance with the functional picture God has for reality. And, and we want to be a people and a civilization that, that acts in that way in the world. And there might be things that we're doing that um, are destructive, that they're actually unjust. And then there are people in the arts and in film that are making incredible stories that invite people into a journey of wonder and highlight such wonderful, wonderful, beautiful truths. There's, they highlight goodness. They, they highlight beauty. They, they even tell stories that highlight the destructiveness of sin and its capacity to harm image bearers and to harm creation, and they, they do such an excellent job of that. And we can look at that story and we can see how that story gives us a taste of truth, goodness, and beauty that's intended to lead us to not stop right there, to not settle for the created thing above the creator, but to continue instead to pursue the one creator. This is what we could call a sacramental way of being in the world, a sacramental view of life. What is a sacramental view of life? Well, a sacramental view of life is is, is marked by these theological affirmations. First, that God has created life as a gift of love, a visible symbol of himself, and has filled it with truth, goodness, and beauty as a means of knowing him. Creation, while it is flawed, it was fundamentally created as good. It's created as a gift of love. It's a symbol, a visible symbol of God in creation. And he's, he's filled it with his truth and with goodness and beauty as a means of leading people to communion with him and to ultimate knowledge of him. The second affirmation would be... In, that the incarnation and bodily resurrection of Jesus affirms the value of our physical bodies and the physical world around us. When, when God stepped into creation, when God stepped into flesh and bone in the incarnation of Jesus Christ, not only was that a statement of the, the physical value of, of the, the value of physical human bodies, but it was it was an affirmation of the value of the entire physical world. And Christ's resurrection from the dead, a bodily resurrection, not just a spiritual resurrection. This is why I can't get down with that, you know, the 19th century liberal theology, which just mythalized, mythalized, is that a word? It, it, It turned into mere myth, the reser- physical bodily resurrection of Jesus and, and transformed it into something that was just a, a symbolic story or a, a sort of spiritual resurrection. No, the physical bodily resurrection of Christ is an affirmation of God's purposeful intentions to restore the physical world and our physical bodies. And finally, a, a sacramental view of life is undergirded by this this belief in the omnipresence of the Holy Spirit. Because if the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is omnipresent, it means that the transcendent God is imminently available even in the mundane. 
the sacramental view of life is the antidote to our meaning crisis. It's the antidote to even the meaning crisis many Christians experience who, who don't have a, a way of seeing the world that allows them to see their daily jobs, the mundane tasks that make up the vast majority of life for the vast majority of people who have ever lived. They're unable to see how the imminent is filled with the possibility of the transcendent. Simultaneously, it's the antidote to our meaning crisis for secular people, for, for, for people in different religious practices, whether their religious system is serving the, the god of sports culture or the, the, the god of myth, the modern myth and comic books and fiction, or whether their god is the god of state, the god of politics— they might actually be tasting incomplete versions of truth, goodness, and beauty in those false religions. And so, just like with any other religious system, traditional religious system, Christians don't go and just say, boy, all of Islam is bad. They shouldn't, at least. All of Buddhism is bad and evil because there is. If you take any time to spend around a Muslim or a Buddhist, um, you will find that there are many areas in which you would share an agreement on what is true, good, and beautiful, just like you might share an area of agreement with someone who is, you know, a hardcore Republican or Democrat or, or, or someone that is just, you know, a a religious fanatic when it comes to their NFL football team, you guys might be able to agree on some things that are true, good, and beautiful. The The, the goal that we get to have, the, the opportunity that those of us who might claim or, or, or be practicers, practitioners of this, this Jesus way, the, the thing that we would be able to do is to endow the imminent with transcendent wonder and possibility so that people could find that the immediate experience that they have of truth, goodness, and beauty, even in its incomplete form, that they would be able to be invited into a journey of greater exploration of truth, goodness, and beauty. So we don't need to deny the truth, goodness, and beauty that is imminently right in front of them because that comes from God. But we are also able to be a prophetic voice in the world around us saying that there are counterfeit claims to truth, goodness, and beauty. And we can see that they're counterfeit when they lead to death, devastation, heartache. They lead to brokenness. They lead to chaos in the world. So let me conclude by giving you three strategies for living a sacramental life of worship in the world, for living with the antidote to the meaning crisis. The, the first one I would encourage you to do is to actually uh, to study the scriptures so that you can know what God is like, to become familiar with the person of Jesus revealed in the, in the Gospels and in the New Testament, so that, that you'd be able to have the ability to identify truth, goodness, and beauty that comes from him. As, as James, James 1, it says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. If you are going to identify that in your own life, 
if you're going to help a friend be able to identify what's true, good, and beautiful in their world, to help them see that their life actually currently already has um, tastes of meaning and goodness and truth in it, then you, you've got to be able to name that properly. So again, the first strategy, study the scriptures, study theology. You know, you guys are doing that now, I think, even by being someone that listens to this sort of this sort of podcast. It, it demonstrates that you're hungry to actually know what truth, goodness, and beauty is. And uh, that's me, too. I, that's why I'm, I do this. It's not to say that I have the complete picture as in, in my present form, but we're on this journey together. The second strategy I'd give you for living a life, sacramental life of worship, which is the antidote to our meaning crisis, is to celebrate truth, goodness, and beauty when you see it and share what you see with others. The source of it all is Christ. And this is essential Christian theology. It, it may be foreign to you because maybe you haven't heard it said in this way, but all truth, and good, truth goodness, and beauty, has, there is no other source. But Christ, this is, again, essential Christian theology. The, in John's gospel, John said it's through him, in John 1, 3-5, through 5, it's through him, Christ, all things were made. Without nothing, I'm sorry, without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light of all mankind, guys, is Christ. John 1, 3 through 5, oh, and it ends, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. There is no other light source. So anywhere there is truth, goodness, and beauty, the source of that truth, goodness, and beauty is Christ. So we should celebrate it when we see it. We should celebrate it with others when we see it, when we see it in their lives, even if they are in a different religious system. Because as, as Justin Martyr said, the, the, those are the, the seeds of the Logos are present there. They're, they're, they're seeds of the kingdom of God. And they may be being watered by your speech, by your affirmation, by your celebration of it. And who knows what it may grow into in that person's life. Who knows what it may grow into in your own life as you celebrate that truth, goodness, and beauty. And finally, one other strategy. I don't, did I tell you at the beginning of this I was giving you two or three? I don't remember. One, one final strategy. Um, not that this is the extensive list, but schedule into your day reminders to pause and be aware that God is at work everywhere, that his spirit is living in you, and that this moment is a gift of love. The, the famous mystic... Saint Brother Lawrence called it practicing the presence of God. You know, Paul said in First Thessalonians that we are to rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. To practice this discipline, which does not come naturally, of living a sacramental life. If you build these reminders into your day to pause, to be aware, to discern that any experience in that moment that you have that is good that's true, that it's beautiful, whether you're at the movie theater, you know, I was at the, just a practical example. I went to, went to go see uh, Shazam last week with my son, my 10-year-old son, okay? We were at the movie theater. Yeah, are there, 
perhaps counterfeit pictures of truth, goodness, and beauty in that film, maybe. I, I would have to do a more thorough evaluation. But there was also so much in that silly comic book story uh, to celebrate as um, gifts that would lead us to God. If we continued to follow down that path of truth, goodness, and beauty, we would find that it came from God. And in that moment, I wanted to be aware that in that moment, that the, that what I was experiencing is just a, a mundane, you know, what, when did we go see it? On a Friday night with my son, that that was a gift of love, that God's spirit was present there with my son and I, even as we were watching a DC Comics movie. That is practicing the presence of God, and it's made all the difference in my life, and I'm still growing in that practice, but it, it's been immensely transformative for me because I really struggled when I was younger. I had a very dualistic view of reality. I, I, I saw, and I struggled, as I mentioned earlier, I struggled as many Christians do with the sense that God created the world. You know, he stepped in at one point in Christ to show us some stuff about him to save the world. And then he's, you know, there will be a day of judgment. And I also know that there's these sort of like moral behaviors that I, I should practice, but I, I wasn't really sure of where God was in the rest of the story. And in my own story, I maybe had felt that if, you know, some miraculous thing happened, some supernatural thing had happened that he was there. But I didn't have a grid for why having a barbecue with my friends or with family, I didn't know if God was in any meaningful way present in that and how that could possibly be good. Or if I was sitting in a class and it was a math class or a science class, it was like the, this, these body of facts and knowledge were in some different category that I, I knew was like helpful for getting a job. It had served some utility, but I, I didn't understand how in any way, shape, or form even learning about that stuff was learning something about God. And and the sacramental view has totally changed my mentality. It's totally changed how I experience the mundane. And again, I'm still growing in it. There's still moments where I feel like the mundane moment of my day is not endowed with any sort of meaning or purpose, it, but it is. And if I practice it more and I become more attentive to it, I'll be able to receive more of those moments as a gift of love. Well, friends, that, that wraps up today's episode, and I, I am weighing out because there is, you know, we've gone through this in two parts of trying to understand the present meaning crisis that we're experiencing, and I, I do believe a, a significant remedy and antidote for the meaning crisis is this sacramental view of life, this sacramental life of worship. But there is also along with that, people experience this meaning crisis because of biological, physical factors as well. And this is also part of the sacramental view of life is that our bodies have value and purpose and they're intrinsically entwined in God's good creation. And, and, and so I, I'm exploring. We'll see. I don't know. There's going to be a few things happening over the next few weeks where uh, I'm, I'm trying. I'm really evaluating whether or not to take an entire, another entire episode to kind of just talk about maybe you know the 
psychology and biological factors that can lead people into experiencing depression or to experiencing these full-on, you know, crises of meaning because because our bodies are intrinsically intertwined in this process, we may have um, in many ways like a, a right view of reality where we are answering these major meaning-making questions with positive answers that actually are in alignment with reality as it is. And yet we may still experience these existential crises of meaning because of biological factors going on on the inside of us, things that would contribute to our depression or anxiety or, or perhaps just to our or lack of positive outlook on the world. So I'm weighing out, I've been doing more reading in that that area. And I, I've been weighing out whether or not to do an entire episode on that. So if that's something you want to hear some discussion about, let me know. It might be a few weeks because over the next couple of weeks, we've got some other fun things happening. Just as there was a couple week gap between these episodes where we had interviews with, was able to interview Preston Sprinkle and Matthew J. Thomas about some just some cool theological issues and topics of conversation. Over the next few weeks, uh, I'm actually going to be, I'm excited to announce, I'm going to be a guest host on uh, Greg Boyd's Renew podcast. His, uh, I think it's called uh, Apologies and Explanations. So I'm going to be recording that next week and it will probably be released in the weeks that follow. I'll have more details for you guys soon. We just kind of nailed this thing down. And there's some other interviews that might be happening over the next couple of weeks. But I'd really love to hear from you guys. If you want to talk, uh, have an entire episode where we are able to maybe unpack. I've been reading some some really important stuff and studying psychology and science and biology to, to try to understand holistically some of the other causes of our meaning crisis and to try to even understand the own my own periods in my life where I experienced uh, despair or I experienced depression and I've been able to pinpoint some of the things the the physical and biological factors in my own life that contributed to that and that is even again that's all part of a sacramental view of the world so let me know you can reach me on twitter or leave a, a comment in the comment section on youtube or on podbean or even you could leave a, a comment in the review section on itunes and let me know if that's something you want to explore and make this a kind of a three-part series i also want to invite you to become a supporter on Patreon. I've recently launched a Patreon page to invite people to become contributors to the work that I'm doing through this podcast and the, the YouTube channel and the videos that I'm making that I, I really would love to be able to do more of and to invest more time, energy, and resources into them. But in order to do that, uh, I need your support. And there are tiered rewards there that you can check out uh, it's been fun to see over the last couple of weeks since I've launched it to get some some porters uh, that are expressing with their contribution that they think this work that I'm doing through this podcast is valuable. So you can check that out. Another great thing that you could do that would be of tremendous benefit is just to even actually, even if you've kind of like manually been going over and listening to this on Podbean or YouTube and you just know the web address to to go ahead and just subscribe to it. And if you left a rating or a review, even if you think it's like, you know, 
I wouldn't invite like a one-star review. If you think it's a one-star program, uh, maybe just prefer you direct message me that. But, you know, uh, whatever feedback that you have on this podcast would be great because that helps other people who are searching for this sort of stuff when they're just searching, doing a Google search for podcasts on theology or podcasts on philosophy or, you know, that sort of stuff that they would be more likely to stumble upon this. And if chances are, if you're liking this and if you're finding anything in these podcasts helpful, that there's probably somebody else who is as well. And I would really love to share my experiences and the, the things I'm processing and thinking through and thought through. I'd love to share those with other people too. So thanks for doing that. Again, I welcome your comments, your feedback. I always welcome your disagreements too. Feel free to disagree with a perspective. Send me a message. If you have a counter viewpoint, a different way of seeing things, that's always welcome too. Okay. All right. So until next time, take care.